Welcome to This Sustainable Life. This is Joshua Spodek. I'm here with Raleigh Williams of Climate Town. How are you doing, Raleigh? I'm feeling great. It's a little early, but I am weirdly up and just down to talk. I, I got to start off with the first difference between what you're doing and what I'm doing is it came off immediately when we were talking before is, and if, if, if what I say leads people to pause this listening and go over to Climate Town and watch a bunch of those videos if you haven't already, they're really fun and they're really funny. And I'm like, I got to bring more fun and humor into my thing. <laughs> I do all the stuff that I think is really fun, like not buying packaged food, but I don't know how fun it comes off, but like you and... <laughs> yeah, it doesn't come off as yeah. that fun, Josh. <laughs> so that was one of the biggest things. You have a unique approach. It's very knowledge-based and practical and thoughtful. Also really fun and funny. And I'm really curious of your history. You know, what got you started? How hard is what you do? Because it looks like really well produced, which tells me a lot, a lot of work. But fun and funny, which tells me lots of passion and joy. And I, I presume that means it started, it probably started with something that wasn't like it is now and built up to it, but I'm not sure. Um, first of all, thank you so much for the extremely kind evaluation of the stuff that I do. I really appreciate that. I guess I coming at the climate crisis from a are we allowed to say climate crisis yeah. on the, the podcast? I'm coming at it from what I think is maybe a little bit of a different point of view. I'm a comedian, first and foremost. Like I care about making funny comedy. That is what I see myself doing. And so maybe that's the difference is that like I am just producing and writing comedy videos that happen to center around the theme of climate change in the same way that like, I don't know, cartoonist might write a bunch of cartoons about tennis or something. You know, they're still cartoons. They just happen to feature a common theme. So my theme is climate change. And so, yeah, that's where I'm coming from. I was hosting a comedy show that was called An Inconvenient Talk Show, where I played kind of a coked out Al Gore kind of character who was on a, a little bit of an I told you so tour. We started it in like 2017. And at, by this time, he had, you know, won a Nobel Prize for An Inconvenient Truth. And he had won a Grammy and an Oscar and an Emmy for his work in television. So he just didn't have the the Tony to complete the EGOT. And I thought it would be a funny bit to be like Al Gore being like, I freaking called it, you know, and then bring on climate scientists and comedians from SNL and Seth Meyers and Jimmy Fallon and stuff to kind of create a, a bit of a variety show as a comedy first and foremost. And then like the climate scientists would kind of add a little realism. But it was about doing a comedy show. And then eventually I did enough iterations of the show and I would be researching climate change to write monologue jokes about and write bits about. And then eventually it just became glaringly obvious to me that climate change was the biggest problem we were going to face. And so I pivoted a bit. I went back to Columbia to get my climate science and policy degree. Then the pandemic hit. And so I couldn't really produce a live show. All right, hold on. I got to stop you before you go on because you went to graduate school in climate science to perform comedy. And now I go back and stuff. How did you get into comedy? Not many people look at climate and say, now that's a funny topic. Uh -huh. Yeah, I mean, and I, and I didn't either. I got into comedy in college. You know, I think I was starved for attention or whatever other hundred horrible reasons comedians get into comedy. I wanted it to be all about me. And so I, you know, would do, I was doing improv comedy in college. I moved to New York to pursue comedy in 2013 or something. 
And I was contacted by a comedy theater that needed shows produced. They had a slot and they asked me if I had a show for the slot. Was it Caveat by any chance? That's an excellent guess. And it shows that you've done your homework, but it was actually before Caveat. It was called the Annoyance Theater. It was out in Brooklyn. And they asked me to put up a show in like a 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. time slot. And so I wrote, it was called An Inconvenient Truth to Listen Up, You Fugly Dipshits was the name of this show. And it was like, the premise was Al Gore took a cyanide pill at the beginning of the show. And the rest of the show was him kind of unraveling as a way of saying, like, I quit. I'm done talking about climate change. Like, this is it for me. And it was about, not about climate change. It was about the life of Al Gore in a comedy sort of way, kind of an experimental show. And then it did not go well. It did not go at all. But I ended up putting the show up in a second theater. And then finally, Caveat reached out to me like a couple years later to ask if I had a show. And I had had this kind of show in that that was in absolutely in the trash can. And I kind of recycled it, I guess, how appropriate. <laughs> and that's where the live show came from. It wasn't at all about climate change to start with. I just remember seeing the book, An Inconvenient Talk Show in a Barnes and Noble shelf and thinking, wouldn't it be really funny if Al Gore wrote a sequel to this book? And it was like called An Inconvenient Truth too, you know, like, fuck you. I was right the whole time. So no wonder it's so funny because you started from comedy and then went to climate. I presumed because you know a lot about climate and environmental issues that you started there and then tried to bring comedy, in, which often doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah, I think it maybe doesn't... Well, I mean, I, I don't want to say it doesn't work. There's this guy named Dr. Matt Winning, who I think is from originally from Scotland. And he just wrote a book called Hot Mess that absolutely rips. If you're out there listening, uh, go go buy the book Hot Mess by Matt, Dr. Matt Winning. So like there is crossover the other way. But I think it's certainly much easier if you spend all your goddamn time doing comedy for 10 years and then you tack a master's degree in climate science on top of that versus the other way is a little harder to do. All right, so that brings us back to where you started before. And now let's jump ahead to where I cut you off and <laughs> that you got your degree in climate science. And policy. And policy. So I'm guessing that you were learning, the more that you learn about climate, you're thinking you're still focusing on comedy, but some... I don't want to say it the wrong way, but like you're developing a conscience, you're developing a passion or a, like this is the issue of our times, something like that. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I went to Columbia very much to get a degree so that my climate change comedy show would be better. Like I really thought about that far ahead. I was like, I have a little extra time. I don't really like my job, which I am doing, which was video editing. Ooh, a little spoiler for later on. And so I'd rather go, you know, kind of pursue this other thing that is quickly developing into an obsession, which is like, how do I do the best climate change comedy that I possibly can? I believe that great artists do something that I don't know if you have to, but did you decide at some point, I'm going to go all in on this? Like, I'm going to cross the chasm, make a leap of faith, something like that. I mean, I think you're right that great artists do that. And for this reason, I did not do that because <laughs> I'm not, I would not consider myself a great artist. I mean, for instance, I'm still working for a billiards company. I host a series of like billiards comedy videos, which is another insane sentence to say. Like I've never put that sentence together before, but that's exactly what it is. I host a billiards show on YouTube 
So, and I still do. So, no, I have not uh, yet gone all in on on. Uh, it's all that climate town is just is like a side thing. It's, it's uh, it has become the main thing in the in the past year. But yeah, it started off as a side thing. And how did that start? How did you decide? Was it, did you decide to do video because you were doing video editing and you knew how to do it? Yeah, I mean, I was doing my live show and the pandemic hit at the same time, and so there was one show that was entirely online and that was a little annoying. And I thought, well, I've always wanted to do a video series. Because I mean, look, look, a live show you get, if you absolutely bust your ass, you can get 100 people in the door, 100 new people in the door who aren't like your friends who you've been begging favors from to come to your show. Hmm. But if you do a really good video, you can get, you know, 100,000 people to watch it. It's maybe a little less impactful because they didn't like, you know, walk their asses to the theater or whatever. But it is still, your your reach is much wider. And so I kind of felt, oh, yeah, I'll give this a shot. My friend James Clark and I kind of did a bunch of brainstorming on the phone and came up with a name. And I wrote a couple drafts of a script and people gave me notes on the script. But I think if you look at the first episode, we kind of come out of the gates knowing what the show is already. And I attribute that to making 1,000 terrible videos in my life. Like Mm -hmm. I got to make all the shitty comedy videos before people were really watching them. So this is like, it comes out and it's pretty good, but that's only because it's built on the shoulders of a million unwatchable minutes of comedy that I've made. And how much time goes into an episode and all the blocking? A goddamn ton of time. Oh, it's so much time, man. It sucks. (laughs) I don't think people, re- I mean, if you look at it, like you will say something and then like uh, it'll cut to something where you're totally out of place, but the sentence just follows, and which is right out of James Burke. If you haven't come across him, you'll love him. I presume that's all thought out well ahead of time, which means that you're doing part of a take here, part of a take there, but they have to look like they're together. And that must be sweating some serious details. Yeah. I mean, well, also, by the way, I just looked up the face of James Burke and I know exactly who this dude is. He had that one, like the most expensive shot where he nailed the rocket takeoff in one take. It was unbelievable. Yes. So go look that up. Don't quit this podcast, listeners out there, but you know, consider looking it up after you finish this whole podcast. I'll put a link in the notes. Yeah, put a link in the notes. It just takes a good, like you just got to have a lot of jokes that don't work in the script. You shoot everything you write and then you cut all the stuff that doesn't work and you're left with the stuff that does work. And hopefully you wrote enough good jokes into the script that you can kind of keep enough comedy in there. What's the ratio of like your effort to make people laugh is to change people's behavior. But now I'm thinking they probably augment each other. I really try to think about it like I'm making comedy videos that are about climate change and not the other way around. So every scene needs to serve as some amount of comedy or some amount of like impact, emotional impact. And then the story behind that is information about climate change. But like it should be first and foremost a series of comedy videos in my head. And if they're not, then I've kind of failed in my goal. Pretty funny. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you very much. I really appreciate that. Especially in comparison to mine. Although (laughs) now I realize like I haven't tried. (laughs) You got to try it out. I do try to make some jokes sometimes. That's not a caveat. I didn't research you. That's why I've done open mic stand-up a couple times. Oh, cool. That's right. Yeah, we briefly touched on that in an early email. So look forward to that. 
you must be thinking ahead to what new topics you want to cover and are you developing a long-term vision of what you want to do, whom you want to work with, what you want to change or anything like that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the macro goal is to make enough videos to get some amount of climate policy on the books so that we can kind of curb emissions so that I can quit making videos and open up a pool hall. That is my goal. So I would love to do that sooner rather than later. I have a lot of kind of arcs that are going. I have a a series on fracking that I want to do. You know, just a giant document of one-off episodes. There aren't really cohesive... You know, there's not like... I I don't have a Who Killed Laura Palmer kind of Twin Peaksy arc going or anything. Yeah, I, I definitely have like levels of oh, if we get a a little bit of funding, we're going to do this kind of thing. If we get a little more funding, we're going to do this. But yeah, it's at the moment, it's kind of an a la carte. I just have a big list of stuff I want to write about that during grad school, for instance, like a teacher would be saying something and I would think, oh my God, this would make an amazing seven-minute episode on why fracking has never made money for America. So like, I you know, bookmark that, I research that, but I haven't had the time to actually pull the trigger on that episode. What were your classmates thinking? I'm imagining a room full of people, all of whom want to change policy. They want to go to DC or state level or start organizations. And you're like, hey, that could be really funny. Yeah, I mean, I certainly, um, I don't know. I was a little older than some of the other classmates and I was I was from New York. So I think people just saw me as like, oh, there, it's that he's the, he, this is the comedy guy. You know, like I would be like, actively trying to riff with teachers in class and they would just be like shutting it down every time, <laughs> which which was kind of fun. But no, I think my classmates were, everybody was, you know, kind of a Gen Zer, and they are notoriously accepting. So they were like fine with it, I think. When it went remote, I think the real issues cropped up when the lockdown hit and every class was on Zoom. And then Everyone, like, no, people don't want to talk during class, you know, like, it, people don't really want to participate. It was kind of a weird time. And so, in a couple of my classes, I was the only one, like, chiming in and, and saying stuff. And the teachers were, like, desperately trying to get other people to say anything. And then I would kind of wait until no one was offering anything. And then I would jump in with maybe the wrong answer. And the teacher, I could tell the teacher was just like, okay, like, I kind of appreciate you talking, but also like, please shut the fuck up because like, no one else has said anything so far. And my response in my head was always like, well, I'm trying, you know, like, I no one else is saying anything. I don't know what you want from me. Like, I'll say something if you want, but no one else is talking. So, you know, it was a little bit of an impasse. I I pick up litter every day. That's not to change the world. This is to develop my leadership skills and experience. Mm -hmm. But also... I have to, I put myself in the mindset of someone who drops litter on the ground. I take it you don't have it in you to do that. Could you just like drink a soda and then drop the can and walk away? No, no, yeah. I couldn't do that. And yet our city and our world, I mean, it's not just New York City. Like everyone could say like, oh, cities are dirty. Go by any highway, go by. I took the train across the country and every place the train stopped in the middle of, it's 48 hours from LA to Houston. And there'd be these whistle stops. And I get off the train, everyone gets off and smokes. I don't smoke. And then there's a Coca-Cola bottle just sitting there. It's like hours from anything. And I've had on the podcast all these sailors. And if they've sailed for a long time, like 20, 30 years, they can talk about it at the beginning. It was a novelty. They'd be out in the middle of nowhere and they'd see something floating, you know, a piece of litter floating in the water. But now it's everywhere all the time. 
Mm. And they've seen it in their lifetimes. So I try to think of what could motivate someone to do something that I just don't have it in me to do. I don't, I don't think I know anyone who would just drop litter on the ground. And it gets really dark of this part of like, I don't care about the future. You know, I don't care about making my problems, other problems or what they do mm. care about. I mean, I hope it doesn't interrupt your flow, but I can definitely put myself in the mindset of somebody who litters. Yeah. Easily, easily. Yeah. And I think it's usually like, to me, it's usually a person who who feels as though the system has no time for them. Our current society has failed them in some way or another. And whether that's legitimate, a real gripe or imagined, it's a little fuck you to the rich guy at the top to litter. From their perspective, they own, the rich people own the city. And I think that is very true to a very large degree. I think overwhelmingly, rich people do own cities, both literally and figuratively. And so littering is just a little tiny like middle finger to someone who has so much that, they, but they won't even a little bit give any of their wealth away. That's like littering to me. So let me rephrase it. It's not hard to get there. It's uncomfortable and dark to get there. Like It's, it's dark. I mean, it's realistic, but it, it is dark for sure because reality is dark. But your take is funny is to find humor in these things. Thank you. <laughs> I guess what I like to do is I love the kind of humor that like John Stewart and John Oliver create. Mm-hmm. And that tends to be talking about a pretty depressing narrative while using the kind of language and metaphors that are funny, you know, humorous, humorous bits, rather than like thinking about something in a jovial or humorous way. And so like, and I think maybe that's how you get to the point of being able to talk about a devastating global crisis like climate change in a way that's funny, not by infantilizing it or reducing it to the point of it being wrong, but by staring it in the face and talking around it, talking humorously around it to elucidate the truth of it. That's, I think, where it comes from. Yeah, I I didn't identify as much the intelligence in your stuff and the research. There's a lot of people who just, they'll take the words and throw them around and you can make humor out of a superficial understanding of it, but you have a deep deep understanding of it. Hmm. Well, it cost me $70,000 at Columbia. So I, I got to make some of that money back on YouTube ad revenue. As I continue podcasting, I'm getting, I'm building the relationships and dropping the pretense and just being more myself, I think. As that happens, there's more freedom and expression and connections. And I start seeing where it can go and where it can lead. In my case, there's the book that I'm working on and the workshops that I do with corporations that contact me, which is really great. It feels like I can help people at a much higher level. Is your voice developing? Is your vision changing? Are you getting better at it? Is that leading somewhere? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I mean, certainly I am recognizing patterns better. I know how to research better. I know who to talk to more. I've developed my network in a way that I no longer have to spend six to 10 hours combing through internet archives or the Wayback Machine to find certain screen grabs of websites or articles. I can just, oh, my friend Emily Atkin knows exactly what I need from this thing. I can just text her, you know, or, oh, my friend Dr. Jeffrey Suprin has an encyclopedic knowledge of this particular Exxon internal documentation. 
I can just ask him, you know, so these are ways that I'm, I'm sort of streamlining the process a little bit. I've seen the voice of people that I like change the more trauma they endure from various pursuits. I have friends who are social workers and and you can definitely see, I mean, this is going to be a little dark, but the light go out of their eyes a little bit, you know, <laughs> that's just reality. Like they're just dealing with reality so much that they, they don't have the like kind of rose colored glasses that a lot of people do. But I, my goal is to kind of maintain a sense of, you know, lightness or joviality, if that's a word. And I do that through modulating the, you know, the stuff I intake and things I do outside of the climate change communication world. And so, yeah, I think I'm developing my voice, but I'm also trying to be aware of it's possible to just skew really dark. And I don't want to do that because I think that's like not that fun. When you and I talked before and you're a producer, one of the first things that came up was the topic of personal action. And yeah, how I talked about how I was going to walk you through the process of the, now called the Spodek Method. And that's so weird. Your last name is Spodek. This Sustainable Life is now a family of podcasts. There's someone in Italy doing it for an Italian audience. There's a woman in oh. England, but she's doing it now for England. She lives in an untethered lifestyle, is how she puts it. And so she mm. gets non-standard people. Like I go for business executives and sports leaders. And, Whoops. And, and she, <laughs> she got me. For, like, she had a criminal on. And she had a pole dancer on and people living alternative lifestyles, I guess mm. would be a way to put it. There's a guy who was in Japan, now he's in Hawaii, and he does more engineering and science-based solutions. And so I was teaching them how to do the process that I'm talking about. And it needed a name. And they're like, well, Spodic Method. And I was like, the vanity in me is like, let's go with that. It sounds good. And another part of me is like, is that the, really the best name for it? I'm working on my book and I was just talking with my editor about calling it the AIM of Method, A-I-M, because it's authentic intrinsic motivation. Hmm. I mean, for me, Spodek has a sort of 1980s science fiction kind of twang to it. And I think that is enough reason right there to use it. Spodek kind of has like deck is, you know, Rick Decker, you got the uh. digital deck, Spodek. I don't know. It's got a, it's got the good like plosives. The holodeck. Yeah. Holodeck. Yeah. That kind of work nicely. All right, one vote for sticking with Spodek. Is your vote not sticking with Spodek? I could go either way because my vanity likes it, but AIM feels like authentic, intrinsic motivation is like clearly describes what it is, what's going on. To me, there's a lot of advice out there, a lot of information, facts, and knowledge on the environment that's really based on this principle, I think, that if you give people the right information, they'll know what to do. Or if you tell people what to do, they'll do it. Yeah. But what seems to happen is when you tell people information that turns them off and when you tell them what to do, they push back. And so from a leadership perspective, I find that ineffective. As it turns out, everyone cares about the environment. And not just in abstract sense of they like clean water, clean air, clean land. Mm. But they have something inside them of what nature means to them that most of the time gets squished down. When you talk about the environment, if I say, you know, this is park near where I grew up that was just such a magical place and then it got paved over and I missed that. I think they fear that someone will say, you know, 100 million people in Bangladesh are going to die. And you're talking about this little park over there. To, you know, get a grip. You know, we have to fix the world. And you fixing that is wasting time from fixing the big things. Mm. And so people suppress that. They keep it down. But actually, if that's in their hearts, that's what actually motivates them. Unpaving that uh, parking well, structure that went over their favorite park? Yeah. 
Or no, I, I get it. I'm just, I'm just, uh, just goofing on you. No, I think that sounds accurate. I will say I would vote against the aim method because although authentic intrinsic motivation might technically describe what it is, it sounds a little corporate, like bullshitty to me. That mm. just my immediate corporate bullshit like detector went off. Even if it's not right, it's got the feel of like a, you know. I could see somebody like going through PowerPoint slides that say that and being like, oh, brother. So maybe third name, potential third name. Okay. But if you end up going with AIM, then delete this part of the podcast because I don't want to be on the record as shitting on a, a good idea. But once it goes up online, then it's, it's locked in. I want to think of something that's like corporate radar. Well, you know what? Maybe, and you know, maybe this is just me being like, watch out. The man is going to get you. You know, it doesn't, maybe having something that accurately describes it is better, even though it might sound a little like falutin. Not even highfalutin, but just falutin. Falutin. Yeah. Is there a low falutin? There's gotta be. I don't know what falutin means. I just always assumed it was flute based, but I, that can't be right. To me, I just hear Yosemite Sam every time. It's like highfalutin just sounds like him. Yeah. Which is why I like the word. Anything Yosemite Sam says, what if it's the Yosemite method? <laughs> you know what? We don't have to come up with a name for it right now. I like Spodek method. That's my vote. But honestly, it's your method. You name it however you like. Okay. Oh, well, let's jump into it since we're talking yeah. about it. Yeah, let's do it. When you act on the environment, what motivates you? And I don't mean what in the future motivates you of what changes you want to make or the comedy part. But what do you think about when you think about nature? Do any images come to mind? Yeah. Well, I worked at a Boy Scout camp for eight summers when I was a youth. And that particular plot of land is really special to me slash deeply ingrained in the gray matter of my brain. So I would say when I think of nature, if I was to close my eyes and conjure the word nature, it would be while I'm walking between two lodges in that particular Boy Scout camp. Can you describe what you see? I mean, is it, are we in the mountains? Are we near the beach? Are we? Yeah, it's in Colorado, which is kind of uh, perpetually a little brown because it's not that well moisturized. Yeah, I guess it's, if I was going to pick one particular part, it would be walking between the not tying lodge, <laughs> which was a real lodge, and the camp where all the first year counselors camped, which was kind of down this windy tree-laden path where one time I saw a ghost, but in the daytime, it's pretty ghost-free. But, you know, it's like lots of trees, a pretty narrow trail, sharp, craggly rocks around a dry creek bed nearby, a lot of pine needles on the ground, that kind of thing. When you describe it, I'm thinking of you, and what I'm hearing is a kid, I don't know how old you were at this time, but I'm picturing like you're kind of jumping around these things. 16. 16? Is it... Is yeah. it fun? Is it adventure? Is it? It started out as work, but it became a camaraderie. I think more than fun, sort of a obligation with my best friends, which which was a lot of fun a lot of the time. Sometimes it was pretty dispiriting, but most of the time it was very fun. Dispiriting? What would be? It doesn't sound dispiriting. Um. Yeah. I mean, like getting up at six a.m. every day to do the same things, and like you know. We'd go on trash runs at 11 p.m. or 12 a.m., I guess, midnight. And that, there were parts of that where, like, you know, my buddy John Volpe would jump in a truck and we'd all, like, kind of pile into the truck and blitz around camp at midnight at 40 miles an hour through these trees to, like, pick up trash. There were fun parts of that. And then you take the trash and you throw it into the dumpster and the bag rips open. And yesterday's macaroni and cheese gets all over your only, you know, camp uniform. 
And then it's that's the dispiriting kind of moment. Okay. There were high highs and low lows, I guess. When you act today, when you do Climate Town, is that a part of what motivates you? Is it in your heart when you're doing these things? Yeah. One of my biggest motivations is like a provably right thing that people are doing the opposite of. So this is one of the reasons why I fucking love Jon Stewart. I think he has a lot of these moments where you know, he would like show a clip of a senator saying one thing and then show another clip of the same senator saying the exact opposite thing. Like, well, look what you're doing. Like, you're not a serious person. This is like destroying the fabric of American democracy. Like those sorts of moments I really like. And so my motivation for doing Climate Town is sort of a mixture of that is the arc of the climate crisis is a series of people like corporate malfeasance and people doing the wrong things. Well, but also it's like, to the detriment of everything I ever loved as a child. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of, uh, that's the motivation. Let me see if I get it right. Because partly when you said what you love about John Stewart, I remember John Stewart saying, this is my favorite clip of all time. And I think it was a Fox News host or someone on Fox News, a politician maybe saying, I've been on welfare. I never got any help from anyone. Wow. (laughs) I've never seen that clip. That's a tremendous clip. That's exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah, those moments. So what you see now in the world is a lot of this corporate malfeasance, people, maybe for their profit, for whatever reason, they're twisting things around. They're taking this, what for you is this Boy Scout camp. I feel like what I'm picturing, and I don't know if this is right, but like they're kind of stepping on that for their own profit or benefit. Yeah, and I think it's maybe a little overly saccharine of me to kind of pin everything on this little Boy Scout camp in Elbert, Colorado. I, to a large degree, it is the corporate malfeasance aspect for me. And it's like political malfeasance and just a bunch of people operating against the better interests of the public for personal gain. That exact thing is what really keeps me up at night, wakes me up in the morning. Like I really, really hate that. Can you give an example? So for instance, in the 1980s and 90s, ExxonMobil executives were briefed dozens of times on the fact that rising carbon emissions were going to create a whole lot of problems in every country, but starting with the developing world and then ending with America. And instead of doing anything about it or instead of like reducing profits just a little bit or altering the way they did oil extraction or the way they lobbied against auto fuel standards, instead of doing any of that, they covered it up for their own profit, for executive profit. When the oil market fell apart in the 80s, They fired all the climate scientists so they could keep giving bonuses to their executives, these sorts of things. These are like moments of, well, obviously this is wrong and this should not have happened. I don't know. Those are the moments that make me wonder why we let these corporations continue to operate unchecked. So I'm reading that there's a, and I'm going back to earlier in in our conversation, that there's some absurdity in this that you see that you're trying to highlight and bring out and hopefully undermine. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, it also makes me think of, I stopped eating hydrogenated oils. When I was a kid, I heard there's saturated fat, which is not very healthy, mm-hmm. unsaturated fat, which is more healthy. It's caloric, but not bad for you. And then what I was taught was that partially hydrogenated oil was in the middle. Mm. Then later I learned, actually, no, it's worse than anything. Uh-huh. And they didn't find it. They bubbled hydrogen through oil to do it. And then they found out, oh, it's more shelf stable. It makes things crunchier. And we'll tell people that it's actually healthier. And the reason I don't need partial hydrogen oil is I can't do business with people who decide 
to suppress the information that they know in order to make a profit off of my health. Yeah. And it sounds like that. That's exactly right. That's infuriating. And, and it's that on a really wide scale. And like that more than the fact that I really like teaching canoeing at my Boy Scout camp. And also like that's what motivates me as a comedian is like these kind of moments of absurdity and getting to comment on them. You know, I really, I like the dynamic of like showing a clip and talking about the clip and giving context and showing another clip. I just, I like that format, the sort of patterning that happens there. Of undermining them? Yeah, like just telling the story with context for people who wouldn't have otherwise heard the story. And I think this is like a thing that you said earlier, and it's the thing that I really truly believe. Like, if people had the information, their choice is clear. They like the reason why we are in a crisis right now is because people don't have the information in their heads. They don't exactly know what has happened in the past, what's going on now. And this is like kind of a big problem. Like a informed public, I think, is the goal. Based on what you said of the experience when you're 16 of the camp, yeah. plus or minus a few years, and then to me, the emotion would be rage, uh, outrage, and also helplessness, maybe, if I read you right. I mean, that's how I feel um, in some ways. Yeah, I mean, I think like whatever a, a kissing cousin of rage is, that's just a little more tempered, I think would be a little more accurate how I feel about it. Helplessness, I think, is one. It's sort of exasperation at a difficulty to turn such a large object. Hel- yeah, you know what? That's the basically the definition of helplessness. Yeah, I would say to some degree, helplessness is there too. And what it could be is, what was the feeling when you're canoeing? The real memory that comes to mind is at midnight, going down to the lake, taking a boat out against all the regulations and just whipping across the lake in a sailboat. Yeah, that's sort of like, you know, you could change attack whenever you want you know it felt, felt great that was that kind of moment freedom of like or... yeah freedom and speed and mastery excellence like it felt really like i was oh i'm good small boat sailor moment is this helping the spodek method i'm sorry i feel like i'm all over the place on the contrary i invite you and this is at your option okay because you don't know what you're getting into but <laughs> to think of something to do to act on those feelings I'm thinking mainly of the sailing or the boating Mm. or these rocky paths with the trees through the, you know, the way you felt then combined with the feeling of the, uh, the helplessness and the exasperation. Is there something you could think of to act on those things to manifest them in some way? Now, what I'm not saying, and a lot of people here, I'm not saying what's the most important thing or what's something you could do to fix the world's problems. It's not about the world. Mm. It's about you just manifesting some of these values in your life. With three constraints. Okay. You have to do it yourself. So it's not doing something so other people will do something. So with your own hands. Something you're not already doing. And something with a physical component. So not just reading a book or watching a documentary. Mm. Something that afterward you can say, I made the world better in some way. You don't have to measure it, but just non-zero. I think this would technically qualify as zero, which would be, I found that despite coming back to Colorado for a couple of weeks, I haven't gotten out into the wilderness very much. So maybe... Getting out there would be nice. I mean, the obvious answer is like, go clean up trash outside, you know, like that. I mean, not not that I should say it like that because that's obviously a, a genuinely good pursuit. Maybe the move is, I have a dad who is, you know, kind of suffering from some health stuff right now. And he was always really into scouting when I was growing up. And he also is a big fan of this summer camp. 
So maybe it would be as easy as me driving my dad down to the summer camp again and doing some kind of something for the camp. Could be a cleanup effort. It could be like a reorg effort. I mean, I guess for the ease of the Spodak method to work, I would say it would be we would pick up trash at the Boy Scout camp that I told you so much about. Some people wonder if they just want to go experience nature, but they want to leave it better in some way. Some things that could be, if you're doing that instead of something else, Mm. like if you were going to go... I was going to go burn a forest to the ground. So maybe I won't do that. I will go to the Boy Scout camp. Now you sound like someone who's researched carbon offsets and... uh, Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'll sell my ability to burn a forest to the ground to someone who won't do it. I mean, it could be picking up trash when you're there or doing something meaningful. Yeah. I do the Spodic method with others and others do it back to me. Like when I trained someone to do their branch of the podcast. And one of my things was to go walk with my dad in, I think you were watching my TEDx talks. I talked about sledding hill. Mm, mm. And I went with my dad to the sledding hill. And I got to tell you, a lot of, I don't get along that well with him. And the last couple of times I've seen him, it was in Manhattan when he's passing through and I go to visit him by Penn Station and it's not really a lovely part of town. And what do you know? We don't have these great conversations. But then walking the sledding hill, and we were picking up litter while we were there. Although that wasn't like the main point of it. It was just something that we just did. It was a great conversation. It's like one of the best conversations I've had with him in a really long time. And I think that I didn't expect that. Looking back, I could have recognized time in nature generally is peaceful, easy feeling and mm-hmm. lovely. And But I just hadn't counted on it. And so that's why I find this this exercise often leads people to get more out of it than they expected. Mm. I think I would. I think you're right. It's a pretty long trip down and back and that would be more time to talk with him than I've had in months. So yeah, I think that'd be a good little excursion. So that sounds like a pretty specific thing. I wonder, would you be willing to come back a second time and share what that experience was like? Oh yeah. I'd even be willing to bet you that. What's the bet that you have with people? (laughs) Sorry, I set it up and then I did. Yeah, the bet is that you'll like it so much. I bet that you like it so much that you won't be able to lie about it. That you could win the bet simply by saying, I didn't enjoy it that much. And then I have to pay you. But instead, mm. you'll, you just won't be able to. Wow. That is, that is really seeing the good in people that I, I would be skeptical about. But I mean, it's certainly optimistic. But we shouldn't do that bet because then I would be incentivized to lie. And I don't, want, I, don't, I don't like to put myself in those positions. If you like the show, I recommend acting as my guests do. It works best with someone supportive, your spouse, parents, kids, neighbors, or friends. Learn the four-step process I do with my guests and describe in my TEDx talks and do it together. You'll find yourself acting on something you care about, something meaningful. Whether you start big or small doesn't matter. If you care, if it's meaningful, you'll keep doing it. You'll reach big. Eventually, stewardship will feel normal. You'll wish you had started earlier. Second, I recommend donating to help this podcast at joshuaspodek.com slash donate. I promote degrowth and stewardship, which no advertiser will touch, but brings joy, community, connection, and abundance to you when you act, and global change in the long run. Help us keep going. That's joshuaspodek.com slash donate. Well, you've been developing the humor and the video editing and the production, and I've been developing the leadership technique. Yeah. You know, one day I'm going to be talking to the CEO of Exxon, and I'm going to do this technique with him. Maybe it'll be her at that point. And Probably not, though. That person has their Boy Scout camp. You know, it's a totally different thing for them. But there's something in them that is intrinsic, that when that's out, and they'll feel comfortable, they'll, they'll love sharing about it the way you mm. love sharing about it. 
And yeah. then there's something to lead them with besides argument and debate and being right. Because um, in their minds, they're right too. Yeah, yeah. I think that that is... Between between that and confirmation bias, I think people are difficult to move outside of, you know, a court order. But I, by all means, I mean, like the current CEO of Exxon is named Darren Woods. So how ironic that his last name is is the thing that I give a shit about. And he loves stock buybacks, you know, like, I don't know. But by all means, I hope it works. I don't know if you saw the Shell CEO on this TED panel discussion. The one where the activists like shouted his ass down. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. This is the skeptic in me, but they've created a system where they are allegedly beholden to some sort of imagined fiduciary obligation to their shareholders where their hands are tied to the wheel that they've constructed for themselves. It's, it's hard for me to take anything they say seriously. What he was saying, and I think he believes this, is that he thinks we have to help the people who burn our fossil fuels. He's not using this language, but he's saying, you know, sure. we need to help them change. And we're good at that. And we need to be able to do that. And as it happens, crazy it may sound, we need to keep doing our business in order to change our business. We need to take the profits from what we do to generate new technologies and innovations and things like that. And most importantly, we need to not hold ourselves accountable for the damages we've created. So this is where what I'm talking about with the littering and trying to get into their minds of like, what is actually in his heart? He's not saying, mm. how can I not be accountable? He's saying something different. And that's what I want to get at. Yeah, I mean, at some point when you get caught, you try to weasel out of it, right? There, There's the kind of two versions of this. There's like one version where you admit to some semblance of wrongdoing and you commit to change. And then there's also the like, hey, we're not going to, let's stop asking who started this fire. We're just asking what's the company that's going to clean it up. And we happen to have a fire cleanup company. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it feels like if the argument that they are making is as crazy as it might sound, you have to let us keep fucking everything up so that we can maybe fix something later on. And not like we have a billion dollars and we could use that money to immediately pivot into renewable energy. We could. We could do it. We would we'd probably lay some people off. We wouldn't be able to give like massive, massive uh, executive benefits and payments out, but we could do it. But we're not going to do it because no one is making us. And so since we're not going to do that, we will try to do a much less difficult thing that allows us to keep doing what we've been doing forever because they're is no one who's going to stop us. That would be like saying someone who litters is their point of littering is littering. It's going to be different for everyone, but I think it's something in their hearts. I'm not agreeing with this, mm. but they look back and say, you know, the free market is what has created more wealth and brought more people out of poverty and created more prosperity than anything ever before. It's, this is the best way to solve our biggest problems. And even if fossil fuels are a problem, if fossil fuels have driven this growth and all these innovations and all this prosperity, then all we have to know is that the market, that people want less fossil fuels and we have to let the market do that. And if that means bring fossil fuels more to, in order to get less, in ways that we can't understand, this invisible hand will drive the solution that we want. And you people who disagree with that, 
you would have stopped the works a long time ago and we wouldn't have had all this greatness that we do have today. Now, I can poke holes in this all, all over the place. I don't feel this way, but I can see someone... Do you think he can poke holes in it? The CEO of Shell? I think there's a part of all of us that when you said what Exxon did before about they knew the stuff and they suppressed it and they said, let's just keep going. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I've known about climate change and sea level rise and plastic pollution since as long as I can remember. I was born in 1971. I think virtually everyone has done the exact same thing. I talked to my mom. I talked to my dad. I talked to everyone I know. They're all saying, yeah, I know, but I still want to fly across the country. I know, but I still like meat. Do you talk to your dad about climate change? And he says, I know the ins and outs of climate change. And I believe that man is causing climate change and I still want to do all these things? Or is he the kind of person that's like, I think the science is still out? He says, look, my grandsons are across the ocean and I love them and I want to see them. Mm. And I recognize that there's pollution coming out of it, but I value family more than I value other things. Those sorts of decisions are much easier moral decisions to make when you think there might be some controversy over whether climate change is happening or not or whether human beings can affect the climate or not. Oh, yeah, certainly what Exxon did makes it easier for him to do that. Right. And it makes it easier for Exxon to do what Exxon is doing. What I'm getting at is that I don't think people are making rational choices. He's saying, I value this more than I value that. But he just Mm. has a gut feeling. Like, I want to go visit my grandsons. And then there's back rationalization afterward based on his worldviews that say family trumps everything. Mm. And that's worked for him his whole life. Why change? Sure, sure. So if you want to change someone's worldviews, which I do, or be open to maybe my worldview is off. I, I could be blind to things. I think that getting it out there and getting other worldviews into play for their psyche, their minds is, I mean, I can't give them any facts that they don't already know. I'm sure there's little details of the IPCC report that I might know that they might not, but I don't think I can give the CEO of Axon or Shell something that they don't already know. But you know that fossil fuel consumption needs to be curtailed as soon as possible. Yeah, This is a thing that presumably you have internalized. Yes. And yet you just quoted me, a, a, I guess, Ben Van Buren, the Shell CEO, that he said, we need to keep burning fossil fuels. That's his view, yeah. But like, if you couldn't tell him anything he didn't already know, and you know we need to stop fossil fuel burning, and he said we need to keep fossil fuel burning, where's the disconnect there? He's got an internal worldview that mm. what he says and how he behaves is consistent with that worldview. Mm. I have to get on the playing field of the worldviews, which comes through changing these things comes through, in my experience, not telling people facts and figures because that generally leads them to justify their views. Yeah, I mean, that's like the whole, that's why Daniel Kahneman won a goddamn Nobel Prize, right? That like, we don't change our minds. We make up our minds and find the facts that fit our opinions. Yeah, it came to me through Jonathan Haidt is one of the big places where I came across that. Did Jonathan Haidt beat Kahneman to that? The realization? Did Jonathan Haidt get a freaking Nobel Prize robbed by Kahneman? He's got a really nice illustration of it where he talks about most people think of reason and emotions as like something like a rider on a chariot. There's a bunch of horses is the emotion that are providing all the motivation. And there's a rider who's deciding which direction to move, how fast, how slow. Mm. But like the horses provide the motivation and the intelligence is the rider. And he says it's more like a rider on an elephant. The emotion is much bigger relative to the intellect. And it's more like this. The elephant decides where it wants to go. And then once it does, the, the rider can say like, let's go a little left, a little right, but the elephant just decides. Right. And then afterward, the rider's like, you know what? I did want to go left. Yeah, yeah. Left is good. So it's not just a rider. It's like a, a lawyer. Like 
this is why this is the right thing to do. Mm. That's why that's the right thing to do. Or like, like a proponent. Yeah. And I, I think this is where we fundamentally disagree. Like, I don't think you can change Darren Wood's mind or Ben Ben Bearden's mind on whether or not we need to keep burning fossil fuels. Like, they've made up their mind. They've decided that fossil fuel burning is the best way to get the developing world past the energy barrier, you know, like like all this bullshit. Like, oh, this, 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 this is just the free market, you know? Mm-hmm. And they spectacularly fail to mention the fact that this current, and I'm using big air quotes here, listeners, free market does not take into account any of the externalities that are created from burning fossil fuels, i.e. more, more hurricane, like stronger hurricanes, wildfires, all these things that are costing taxpayers in every country mm-hmm. hundreds of thousands of dollars. Like they don't take into account those because those are not super convenient to their bottom line. So like, why are we, why are we even listening to these people? Why are we even giving them the time of day? Why, like they have proved for 30 years that they are incapable of making the right decision. I think we need to make the right decision for them and have it be legally enforced. Like that's, I think that is my path out of this. I do not see a path where they are, despite, you know, like we can find out however many Boy Scout camps they've been to. I genuinely don't see them changing their ways. I mean, I, I hope to God you do, Josh. I hope the Spodek method is the thing that changes these guys' mind. You're working on finding humor in things. And, and my big strategy, I get all these emails of like, you know, some authors just come out the book or someone's got this little program where they're doing some composting or something like that. And they're like, oh, they'd be great for your podcast. Mm. If you look at my strategy, I bring in people that a lot of people say, we write them off. They're the enemy. They're the adversary. So political conservatives, Trump supporters, evangelicals, mm. military. And I'm developing conversations with them to understand their worlds. It may not be possible to influence the big decision makers of corporations and government. But I think it's possible. And I mean, that's my strategy. I mean, I haven't done it yet. It feels, it feels potentially right to me. So like, by all means, like I think all ahead full. These are the people that I, like kind of exclusively the people that I am cutting out of the game plan in my own head. Whereas like the groups that you mentioned, I think those groups are important parts of this because I think like they have been influenced by these giant corporations and, you know, political leaders to have the opinions that they have. And I like what I would love to do through the, I mean, and obviously this is a ridiculous long shot, but I would love for them to watch a video of mine see the evidence that I support, including like timestamps and, you know, documents and things and feel as if, you know, kind of come to the realization that they have been betrayed by these people. And that's like what I'm hoping for. I can't be sure, but if I get to some of these CEOs of Delta Airlines and so forth, Mm. I'll get them to watch your videos if I can. (laughs) (laughs) Please. I mean, my videos are sometimes 20 minutes long. I don't think they got that kind of time. But if you can, I would love that. That'd be hilarious. Whatever they're doing others with their time, this would probably be better spent. Uh, you know, one can only hope. But I have a feeling that they've already made up their minds and it's a difficult thing to change. Well, I got to say when I started, I really, I mean, my views were like, fusion is the answer. It's clearly going to solve all of our problems. And we just have to make more and more things more efficient. And population was something I never even considered. It wasn't even on the radar for me. Or then what it was, I couldn't talk about it. And most of my views are, are 
not diametrically opposed, but pretty opposed to what I had before. I mean, I was always, mm. the vegetarian did have an, an, that was more a matter of taste, but it did have an environmental component. I would take subways over taxis, although that, that's a definitely a, a cheap component to it too, as a graduate student and so forth. But there's a lot of views that I don't think I do a good job of sharing how far I've come and where I was at first. Because mm. people here, you know, I'm in my third year without filling up a load of garbage. And they're like, well, he was always that way. Like, that's him. <sighs> that's, that's his whole shtick. Yeah. He, he walked out of the womb like that. Yeah. Yeah. Did you, did you mention that. like pop? I, I feel like there's a, there's this common kind of misconception or what I perceive as a misconception that like, the big problem is the size of the Earth's population or something. Is that a thing that's come across your desk? Oh, it's definitely. I mean, for a long time, I'd ask, what is the carrying capacity of the planet? And are we above it, above it or below it? 20 billion, at least, for real. That's what you're saying? Are you saying that? Yeah, absolutely. Like th- this idea that, oh, it's just the population growth that is killing us is like this wild misconception, I think, that like is being perpetuated by... America, basically, or Michael Moore specifically. Well, I'd never say just the population, but population is a major factor. Right. I don't agree. You don't agree now or ever? I don't agree at all. Ever? Either one. Take your pick. Ever. So if it was above 20 billion, if it was like 100 billion? I think we can make it work. See, now what's going through my head is like, I think what you said your time limit was, like we're butting up against it. We're, uh, we, we got about 15 more minutes. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh... But, uh, but, uh, but this, this, I like every American's like carbon budget is super high. four times the average. Mm. So like this idea that for some reason we need to decrease the population is like to not even consider for a minute the absolute gluttony that is the developed world. So like, we have, what is it? Is it 8 billion people yet? Just about, yeah, breathing on it. Yeah, so like, imagine if we averaged out the carbon footprint and everybody lived by that. Mm -hmm. And then we continued to reduce that. And I don't like the term carbon footprint, obviously, because fucking BP invented it, but it tells an interesting tale. And I think a lot of, it's this easy, like, rich white guy argument to say that, oh, the population is the problem when really it's, you know, people hoarding wealth to a ridiculous degree with with no concern about the energy demand that they are taking up. I think there's a great example of what I was talking about, about the worldviews driving perception that Mm. to get at those worldviews is... So I'm trying to think if there's a way to quickly access that, but I haven't had quite this conversation quite this way. So I'm not quite sure how to get there. But I know that if I start telling you, well, if you look at these numbers, and you look at these numbers, and you look at these numbers, you'll see that blah, blah, blah. Your probably first reaction would not be to consider those numbers, but to think he's just in getting it. No, I, might, I guess my reaction would be like, well, let's look at the underpinning assumptions of the numbers that you're looking at. And not like, oh, I mean, because look, if you looked at, if, if you showed me the numbers that, that you saw from whatever documentary you watched or whichever guest you talked to or whatever book you read. Mm -hmm. I think those numbers are accurate to their kind of aggregation. And if you chart them out, I think it shows like some kind of precipitous cliff that if we hit a certain number, whoa, no, we won't have enough food for everybody or space for everybody or something. But I think those numbers were created by people who haven't looked at the alternative, which is not living like we live today. You're seeing that their worldview is off. 
like they probably expected to find those results. And so they did. For, yeah, from my perspective. Yeah. Well, yeah, because the alternative is like not changing their own life in some way. And that is anathema to the, 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 the rich white guy, you know, like I, it would be amazing if everybody could live like a rich white guy. Like what a, what a terrific life and walk skiing on weekends and like, you know, drinking uh, IPAs at 3 p.m. Like that sounds great, but I, it's just, we, we doesn't work that way. And if you ask them what the problem is, they're going to say it's too many people. You know, I'm hearing what you're saying, but I'm also thinking of, I would, I think that you probably would expect they would be able to change. Maybe not. Maybe there, there's something too much about the richness and whiteness that's inherent. No, I think, I mean, change sometimes is foisted upon people. So of course they can change, you know, like if, if there's an accident in a road, mm-hmm. you don't want to go a different way, but you go a different route and you actually might find that the route that you go is a better route than you always took, but you just never took that other route. So you're going to be doing something different. Take your dad out to the park. Wow. Listeners, did you hear that seamless transition that Josh just made? Wow. Ter- honestly, that was, a, that was very, that was a good little, little switcheroo. I like that. And, th- and this is not disparaging. I'm saying you're an excellent host. You, you were like, okay, got it. We're curtailing this thing and we're moving into <laughs> this other thing. I really liked how smooth that was. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you. What you said, people can have, go through changes and that those changes that can get them to change. Like it might be a little change. They didn't cause, it just happened. There's an accident in the road ahead of them. They have to go a different route Mm. and going that different route. They see new things. They have different experiences, whatever. They're not doing what they would have done if the accident hadn't been there. And now an accident is an accident, but a spotic method is an engineered technique to cause them to take a different route than they would have otherwise. Will it be big enough to change on the scale that if their whole life and their hundreds of millions of dollars in their bank account and their future legacy that they've been building up for all this time depends on it, will a trip with their fathers, figuratively speaking, a trip to, with their fathers to their Boy Scout camp, will that make a difference? I'm not sure. I mean, if I just do it with one person, it won't. But what if their peers are all taking baby steps too? Mm. I mean, one thing motivating me is if five people around you all behave a certain way, then you'll tend to, it'll feel normal for you to do that, even if it wasn't. Yeah. And that's one of the things I'm trying to work on is I'm not just going for one of these people. I'm going for broadly these communities. I mean, I, I think that's an excellent goal. This is how viruses spread, right? And this is you're like what you're doing is a good virus. I'm working on r not. How many people can I transmit it to and how can I make it enjoyable so they spread it? Yeah. In a, in a way that they like. Yeah. Like giving, giving, lecturing someone, the rarely is someone like, you know what? Someone just lectured me. I can't wait to lecture someone else on the same thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But if someone says, you yeah, know, the lectures are not that viral. Yeah. yeah. But if someone says, you know, oh man, I didn't realize I had a really good time with, I'm not talking about me, not you, but I had a really good time talking with my dad on the park. Maybe I should share with people if you have a difficult relationship with someone, you know, oh man, I meet with people in Washington Square Park and I know I've watched a bunch of your videos and I'm like, oh, I wonder if I'll ever see him doing a video. But Washington Park is covered with litter and I meet people for business meetings. And one of the things we do is I, we walk around and pick up litter together. So there's this guy I'm working with and I'm getting so much mileage out of the story because it's so heartwarming to me. <laughs> but one day he tells me he's hanging out with his daughter and his daughter picks up some litter off the ground. And he says, oh, I'm glad that you're doing that. How do you happen to do that? And she goes, because you pick up litter, daddy. And he picks it because I pick it up. Wow. That's yeah. awesome. That's a viral spread. That's, uh, that's R1 at least. Yeah. And it's easy to look at that and say, well, one little girl is not going to, what, she's going to clean up the whole world? That's not the point. <laughs> 
it's that it spreads. That little girl's name, Greta Thunberg. Yeah. You know, there's clocks ticking to tipping points and things that, you know, the strategy is not a particularly quick strategy, but it's also doesn't cost much. Mm. And I've made really good friends with like Trump supporters that I wouldn't have expected. Mm. And, you know, I'm not like, hey, let's go vote for Trump together. <laughs> but I am like, tell me more about your life. And here's more about mine. And, you know, where's this coming from? And, yeah, absolutely. I mean, this guy, like, well, I'm talking to you now and I see there's a Miro poster behind you. I'm not sure there's a poster behind you. I'm talking to him. There's a giant Trump 2020 sign behind him. I mean, giant Trump 2020. And he says, one of the things he came up with was he recycled for the first time in his life. And he says in passing, like, you know, everyone should do this. Now, I'm not, I'm not sure he was implying we should regulate this and cause everyone right, else to do it. But right. he was saying everyone should do this. It's really easy. It's fun. And baby steps. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I this is my time, but no, I don't think you are. I don't want to give you the sense that I think that these people can't ever, ever change. You know, I think they can and probably more importantly, they must. A lot of my shtick is about how shitty corporations are. And so I kind of, I'm sure I buy into it more and more every time I do another deep dive or video on it. Yeah, I mean, they're ultimately they're people too, and they they have fathers and children, and hopefully, they don't have like nefarious schemes going on. You know, I think everybody thinks they're a good person, and I think elucidating that is important. So, let's pick this up when we talk the next time. Mm. And about how long do you think it'll be before you can take your dad to the? I don't want to say is it park. It is a Peaceful Valley Scout Ranch. Um, might be a couple weeks. So after we stop recording, could we schedule that conversation for a couple of weeks from now? Sure, sure. Okay, cool. I feel like we're butting up against the time that we have. Yeah, I got to jump off here pretty soon. So anything I didn't think to ask that's worth bringing up or anything to say to the listeners? Obviously, uh, if you're listening, if you got this far in, you got a whole hour in, thank you very much. I really appreciate that. If you have a second to check out my YouTube series, Climate Town. That's uh, youtube.com slash climate town. There is a video that I think kind of elucidates what I'm talking about a little more. I said elucidate like seven times on this podcast. So go ahead and go ahead and uh, we'll switch it to clarify. Clip that out. Yeah. Clarify, uh, confirm. Yeah. There's a video about an ExxonMobil lobbyist who yeah. got caught on a hidden camera, like talking about how they don't believe in the carbon tax despite allegedly believing in the carbon tax. Like, I, I don't know. If you're skeptical about all my bullshit, like, give that a watch. And then, you know, feel free to be skeptical afterward or, or whatever you want to feel. But that one, I think, is particularly damaging to the oil industry. And I'm going to say, also watch it because it's going to be fun and you're going to laugh and it's going to be enjoyable and you're going to watch more. Yeah, it's a funny video. There's some funny edits in there that I chuckled at. So hopefully you like it. Well, Raleigh Williams, thank you very much. Of course. Thank you so much, Josh. And I mean, for the record, I think the Spodak method is pretty cool. You're halfway through. Hey, oh, After I got, we talk Okay, so yeah. well, then I reserve judgment until the end. Thanks again. Of course. Thank you. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.